Um, if you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to uh, Exodus in chapter 32. Exodus in chapter 32. Um, if you're in a scripture journal, this will be on page 154, so Exodus and 32. Uh, and once you get to chapter 32, uh, go to verse 15, and we're going to read 15 through uh, 35 in our time together. Of course, last week, as we've continued to make our way through Exodus and uh, get to about the end of our journey um, in Exodus, we, we uh, looked at verses 1 through 14, of course, the beginning of the golden calf incident, and now we're going to look at the second half of this here. Also, um, if you want a scripture journal, we're, we're going to start, um, God willing, Gospel of Luke in mid-November. Um, you can pick one up in the foyer, uh, or as many as you want. They're four bucks each. Also, there's a guide. I hope you grabbed also a reading guide for uh, Luke. This guide is meant for you to start reading through Luke starting tomorrow, and it has readings for Monday through Friday um, every day until we start um, the study. And also on the back are words and phrases, topics, themes to look for as you do your reading every day. So hopefully that'll be fruitful for you. Uh, but in our time together today, let's look at Exodus 32, 15 through 35. I'm sure my rambling has got you there by now. So let's go ahead and read this together. God's word says, And Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on front and on back, they were written, the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that he had made, that they had made, and burned it with fire, and ground it to a powder, and scattered it on the water, and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you brought such a great sin upon them? Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any of you who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro, gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sins, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I had spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Though the Lord sent a plague on the people, because they had made the calf the one that Aaron made. 
Amen. It's God's word. May God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. In 2015, the Gospel Coalition published a short article by this fellow named Nicholas McDonald entitled, Hello, I am an idol. Here's what he wrote. Hello, I am an idol. Don't be afraid, it's just me. I notice you're turned off by my name, Idol. It's okay, I get that a lot. Allow me to rename myself. I am your family, your bank account, your sex life, the people who accept you, your career, your self-image, your ideal spouse, your law-keeping. I'm whatever you want me to be. I'm what you think about while you're driving on the freeway. I'm your anxiety when you lay your head on the pillow. I'm where you turn when you need comfort. I'm what your future cannot live without. When you lose me, you're nothing. When you have me, you're the center of existence. You look up to those who have me. You look down on those who don't. You're controlled by those who offer me. You're furious at those who keep you from me. When I make a suggestion to you, you're compelled. When you cannot gratify me, I consume you. No, I cannot see you or hear you or speak back to you, but that's what you like about me. No, I am never quite what you think I am, but that's why you keep coming back. And no, I don't love you, but I'm there for you whenever you need me. What am I? I think you know by now. You tell me. McDonald does well there to articulate much of what we explored last week as we began our exploration of Israel's descent into idolatry in Exodus 32. What we saw was the insidiousness and the pull of idolatry. We saw that anything and everything can become an idol. We saw that when we turn good things into ultimate things, they have become gods to us. We saw that even things that begin with good intentions and pious motives can simply be vehicles to idol worship. But now, as we jump back into the scene, we'll see something that's related. Whereas we talked about last week what idolatry is and how we can all be susceptible to its pull, this week we'll see what idolatry does, what it costs. And to do that, instead of giving you several points, let's just walk through this text and make some points of application along our journey. So what we saw last week was Moses was on the top of the mountain meeting with the Lord who was giving instructions on the construction of the tabernacle, which is to be God's means of dwelling with those he has redeemed. Something that hasn't been seen or done since Eden. But Moses is up on the mountains for 40 days, mountain in for 40 days and 40 nights, which is too long for the Israelites, right? And so they, they question whether or not Moses is still alive and they begin to panic. And then we're told they press against Aaron and they demand that he make them some visible God like they had in Egypt who will protect them and lead them. And Aaron capitulates to the mob and makes them this golden calf that was in part the the gold that they gave was to be used for the tabernacle. And so the people then worship this calf and they even use Yahweh language and worship to do it. So God informs Moses, who's oblivious to all of this, right? He's in the mountain, in the cloud, he can't see. He doesn't know that all this is taking place. So God tells him that he's, all this is taking place. God says, I will destroy the people unless Moses intervenes. And so Moses does that. He intercedes and God relents and tells, God tells Moses, go down to the people and see for yourself. And this is where we jump in this morning, okay? So Moses, in verse 15, he starts taking a trek down the mountain, and he meets Joshua a little ways down, right? So you might remember that Joshua went up with Moses 
in chapter 24, but he could only go so far, right? Moses is the one who goes into the cloud to meet with God. Joshua is on the mountain, but not as far up as Moses is. So Moses is coming down, and he's not coming down empty-handed, is he? 15 and 16 tells us he is carrying two tablets of the testimony, which have writing on both sides. These tablets have the Ten Commandments on them, and they are, verse 16, the work of God, because, as we saw in 31, 18, they were written by the very finger of God. So these are no ordinary tablets, friends. (laughs) They have on them not only the Word of God, but the Word written by God. And this picture of Moses coming down from meeting with the living God, carrying tablets written by God while the Israelites eat, drink, and play around this idol that they crafted (coughs) is meant to point us to the irony of the situation. Do you see how thick the irony is? Moses making his way down the mountain where he was speaking with God while he carries the words written by God to encounter a people who forsook that God to worship something that they made with their hands. Now, do you guys see the irony is thick? They turn their back on God who speaks to worship a God that what? Does not. We're meant to see the absurdity here because idol worship is the height of absurdity. It's exchanging knowing and worshiping the living, speaking, ruling God for something that could be constructed by men. That is mute and dumb and controllable, which is partly why Idols are so attracted to us, as we noted last week. Isaiah, I think, does a really good job of illustrating the absurdity, the irrationality of idol worship in Isaiah 44. He says, you go and you plant a tree, and and the rain comes, and it makes it grow, okay? And then when it gets big enough, you take your axe, and you go and you chop it down, right? And then you cut it in half, and you take one half of it, and you chop it up even smaller so that you can make a fire that you make bread on and warm yourself with. But then what do you do with the other half? You construct a figurine to worship with. You fall down before it and you say, deliver me for you are my God. Isaiah is asking, how in the world can a piece of wood save you when so much effort was exerted by you to make it plus Half of it was burnt up in the fire. And what would happen if you took that idol and you tossed it into that same fire? It'd get burned up. Some God, right? And that's the absurdity of idolatry. Whether it takes the form of ancient statues made with hands or the modern forms of money, prestige, sex, power, relationships, and the like. It is an exchange of the living God for something far lower and thus unworthy of worship. And the insidiousness of it all is that we look to these other things to provide what only God can give us when the offer of being fulfilled by God is always there and available to us. It it, it is a settling. It is a dancing around a piece of gold while the God of all things is making an offer to come dwell with you from the mountain. And you're worshiping idols at the base of it. You know, in C.S. Lewis's famous sermon entitled The Weight of Glory, he pictured a child 
sitting in the mud in the slums making mud pies. And while he's doing this, he's offered a holiday on a cruise. But he rejects that offer because he wants to go on making mud pies in the poorest part of town because he enjoys doing it. And he can't imagine the joy of holiday at sea. And Lewis said, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. When infinite joy is offered us, we are far too easily pleased. This is the madness of idolatry. Looking to something to give you the meaning and purpose and fulfillment that only God can. All idols are parodies of the real thing. And it's a settling when we don't have to. What's your mud pie, I wonder? Is it money or pleasure or success or your spouse or your kids or your image or what people will think of you or acceptance or leisure or stuff? Whatever it is, it might be a good thing, but you've turned it into the object that is determinative of your joy and thus it has become your God. And if it's not a thing but a person or people, you're doing a disservice to them too because you're expecting them to carry the weight of deity on their shoulders when their shoulders were not ever meant to carry such a burden. Only God can satisfy and only God speaks. Everything else is a counterfeit. Well, Joshua meets Moses and he says that there's a loud noise coming from the camp and he said it sounded like war. Like a battle was going on. But Moses said, it's not war. It's neither sound like victory nor the sound of defeat. But it's like singing. And perhaps this is supposed to hearken us back to chapter 15 in the song by the sea when God rescued them through the parted water. So again, what Israel's doing in their sin is a parody of Yahweh worship. So Moses and Joshua get to where they could see what's actually going on, right? And they see the calf, and they see the people dancing around and singing around it. And we're told that Moses' anger burned hot, which is literally his nose turned red. And this is exactly how God reacted, wasn't it? On, when Moses was on the mountain, and Moses asked God, why does your wrath burn hot? Do you remember that? And Moses didn't understand the gravity of this at that time, But now his eyes have seen it, and his anger burns hot just as God's had burned hot. You know, it makes me think, and I wonder if this has ever happened to you, where like the kids will be in a room, some room playing, and I'll be in a different room watching my favorite sports teams disappoint me, and I'll hear like a crash or a cry, and then like a few seconds later, Sila will come in and tell me something the kids did, and I'll be like, I'm sure it's not that bad. Like, you're exaggerating. But then I'll get up. And I'll look and I'll see and I'll say, guess what? Okay, it's that bad. You weren't exaggerating, right? Moses wondered why God was so mad. And now he sees it for himself and he's like, yeah, God was right. Like, this is terrible. I could see why God was so angry. And he mimics that anger. And so what does Moses do? He takes the tablet that the Lord gave him, that the, 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 the tablets written by the finger of God. And what does he do? He smashes them against the ground. He literally throws them against the foot of the mountain, and they shatter. Now, it's easy to see this and to see, like, Moses' anger burned hot, 
and then immediately followed by him smashing the tablets and think this is like a rash action. Like, like, like Moses is, is flew into a rage. Like he flew off the handle, uncontrollable rage. He broke the tablets. But that's not what's happening here at all. And it's important that we get this right. What this tablet breaking does is meant to symbolize the covenant being broken by Israel through their deeds. Moses and his breaking of the tablets was not impulsive. It wasn't blind rage, but was deliberate, careful act done openly and in the sight of all to communicate, this is what you've done. They have broken the covenant they have sworn to keep, and so Moses smashes the covenant words to show them this reality. You just think about this. These tablets were the most precious items on the planet at this time. You think that's fair to say? Like, what, what could be more precious than these tablets written on by the very finger of God? So destroying the most precious object on earth is meant to show the people the gravity of their sin. You know, we don't have anything like that in 2021 to compare it to. <laughs> Not, nothing close to that level of preciousness. Like, when I searched on the Google machine, it revealed that the most expensive item on the planet isn't a diamond or a piece of art like I expected, but a yacht. Can you believe that? The most expensive item on the planet is a boat called the History Supreme, valued at nearly $5 billion. How obnoxious is that, by the way? But imagine just getting that silly thing, this silly boat, and torching it or sinking it <laughs> immediately just to make a point, right? Moses <coughs> throws the tablets down, the most precious thing in the whole world at the time, something far more valuable than a goofy boat for the obnoxiously wealthy, and he does that in order to symbolically show Israel the seriousness of what they've done. He's showing them, no matter what they think they're doing, what really is going on is a breaking of the covenant that God so graciously invited them into for his good, for their good and his glory. But the smashing of the tablets is the only symbolic thing Moses does to show Israel the seriousness of their sin, is it? What does he do in verse 20? He has the people take the calf, burn it, ground it to a powder, put it in the water supply, and what does he do? He makes them drink it. Why does he do this? Well, there are many reasons. To begin with, the fact that, just think about it, the fact that the calf can be handled and then destroyed and then ground up and then consumed should communicate something important about the power of idols. Right? A god that can be grabbed and destroyed is hardly worth devotion. Yes? If you can physically grab your god and destroy it in the fire... Surely it's not worth worship, and it definitely can't save you. And it should communicate how utterly silly it is to worship a statue made by human hands. Further, and I'm going to try to be as tactful as I possibly can with this, all right? The people being made to drink the powder formerly known as the golden calf should also communicate what the idols are worth, which is not much more than the results from the body consuming, digesting, and passing it. But... There's more. Listen to Dwayne Garrett. Just as Israel's making of the calf is the paradigm example of Israel's besetting tendency towards idolatry, this is important, listen. 
So Moses' thorough pulverization of the calf is a paradigm for how Israelites ought to deal with idols. They should burn them, break them apart, grind them to pieces, and travel them to dust. So Moses is presented as doing everything to the golden calf that Israel should do to all idols in general. All idols should be thoroughly ruined. Not only should they not be crafted, of course, but they should be destroyed when they are found. And this is precisely, if you can remember, what God told them in chapter 23. He told them when they get to the land that is promised, that they're not to not only not bow down to the idols of the land that are already there, but they're supposed to do what? Tear them down, destroy them, and remove even the temptation to worship them. And this teaches us something about how we should deal with idols we see in our own lives. Idols are not meant to be managed. They're meant to be toppled and destroyed. Friend, what is it in your life that tends to be your idol? I wonder. It's something, I promise. What is it? What is it that displaces God in your heart? What is it that competes for your attention and affections? What is it that if you were to lose it, you would think life was hardly worth living? What is it that you feel you can't do without? Let me ask it another way. What is it that keeps you from scripture reading and prayer because you think you're too busy? What do you always find time for? What keeps you from regular weekly gathering of the church? What are you more zealous about than you are for the things of Christ? What raises your zeal? What do you spend your time and energy pursuing and the majority of your time thinking about and daydreaming about or wishing you had or had more of? Is there something that comes to your mind that keeps you from knowing God more and as I'm speaking you're thinking, no, I can't do without that? You know, whatever it is, it doesn't need to be toyed with. It needs to be displaced. It needs to be toppled. It needs to be removed, rid of altogether. Now, if you've turned your family or your spouse or your kid's success into an idol, which is very common today, for example, that, of course, does not mean you leave your family. It means you cease putting the weight of meaning and purpose and value on them and put it on God and enjoy your family as a gift, not as a source of hope. Because God could bear the weight of deity, your family cannot. Idolatry is too serious and insidious to be toyed with, friends. Ask the Spirit to help you identify your idols and to help you topple them properly. Maybe it means removing yourself from the company of people who drag you into sin. Maybe it means to cease frequenting an establishment. Maybe it means cutting back on extracurriculars. Maybe it means ceasing a hobby. Maybe it, it means deleting social media. Maybe it means getting rid of your smartphone or your computer. Maybe it means downsizing your house or selling or giving away some of your stuff. Maybe it means scaling back at work. Now, if any of that sounds too drastic, maybe that's a sign that the thing you felt pricked about really is an idol. I mean, if something is displacing God in our hearts and our minds and our imaginations, should it not be dealt with? Should it? 
Should it not be plucked up and replaced with Christ? Will it cost? Of course. Of course it will, because following Christ is costly. And it's costly because he means to make us new and grow us over the course of our lives, which isn't easy, but it's worth it. What happens next is related to this, because when convicted about idolatry, we will tend to get defensive or angry, and we will convince ourselves and others of why they aren't idols, or we could justify the improper place we give them. So what happens next? Moses goes to Aaron, and he asks, why did this people do, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And he's giving Aaron like the benefit of the doubt, right? He's assuming the people somehow forced him to build the golden calf. And although we saw briefly last week that the people did press against him, Aaron still shoulders a fair share of the blame for capitulating to the mob. Is that fair to say? But Moses is like, they must have done something to force you to do this. And so, of course, Aaron accepts the blame, right? And he admits in all of this, his role in all of this, and he repents. Isn't that what he does? He says, he says Moses, this indeed is a great sin. I am to blame. I made the calf. Forgive me, and may God forgive me also. Is that what he does? Not at all, right? He first says, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. In other words, he's telling Moses, this isn't a big deal. He's like, big brother, or little brother, calm down. What are you so worked up about? Stop overreacting, all right? He minimized the gravity of the sin. Moses calls it a great sin three times in 21, 30, and 31. But Aaron is like, what are you so worked up about? But then he passes the blame off, doesn't he? He's like, you know the people. You know they are, right? Set on evil. They said to me, make us gods go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what to become of him. So instead of Aaron telling the people, you ever think about this? When the people came to Aaron, they're like, we don't know what happened to Moses. You ever wonder why Aaron wasn't just like, hey guys, you see that cloud? He's in there. <laughs> right? Like He's coming back. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he gives in to sin and he blames the people for it. And this is what sin does, isn't it? Blame-shifting sin has been the pattern since Eden. When Adam and Eve fell and God came to them and asked, why have you, have you eaten from the tree of which I command you not to eat? Do you remember what Adam said? He's like, it's the woman that you gave me. Right? Like, she passed me the fruit and I ate. In other words, not only was it not Adam's fault, but it was Eve's fault and who else? I, I hate to mention this, God, but you're the one who gave her to me. You know, right? Like, it's her fault and it's your fault. And then God looks at Eve and he's like, what is this that you have done? And Eve says, you should have seen it. This snake came up and started talking to me. And he tricked me, and I ate, right? So Adam says it's Eve's fault and God's fault. Eve says it's the serpent's fault. No one took the blame. Aaron is just repeating what happened there. Of course he's to blame. <laughs> but it's easier to blame the people of Israel, even if it's true that the people pressured him. That doesn't mean he actually had to give in to the mob, does it? 
It's poor leadership, not to mention unloving, to give people under your authority over to their sins. All because you felt too pressured. It's a fear of man rather than a fear of God. And the lesson is right there for us. When we sin, when our idols are exposed, we want to lash out. Don't we? And we become lawyers for ourselves. Like when we feel conviction over our sin, we all turn into those kooky people on TV who defend themselves in court. You know? That's who we turn into, and we defend our sins up and down, and we justify them all the live long day. We all have reasons for all of our sins, and although we know their sins, we have reasons as to why they're okay for us to do them. And we might even, like the idols we saw last week, cloak sin in the language of piety. Do you do that? Yes, you do. Because I do it. But the Bible gives no space. Don't you see? No space for passing the blame on sin to others, nor does it have a category for acceptable sins done with proper motives, and thus not such a big deal. (laughs) Every sin... We do of our own volition. We can make excuses and pass the buck, but at the end of the day, when we sin, it's of our own doing. I see this in my own heart all the time. A thousand times every day I do this. And the more I think about it, the more absurd passing the blame is for my sin. It's ludicrous. And as a Christian, it's even more absurd because it's me. Do you see the absurd? It's me trying to justify myself rather than finding my justification in Christ. We must have the courage to own our sin and admit it, not excuse it or try to pass the blame or dismiss it with a hand wave as if it's not a big deal. You think about the breakdown here. If sin isn't a big deal, why did the Creator God enter flesh to be executed for the sins of the world? You see, do you see the consequences when we justify our sins or think our own sins aren't a big deal? We're saying that the Savior's death meant what then? If we're unwilling to repent of sin, how can we know or grow in Christ? Biblically speaking, confession of sin is part of true repentance. The person who understates their sin is not really demonstrating repentance in God. And we can bring this full circle, can't we? Could it be that the reason we have such a hard time admitting our sin is because our idol is our reputation or our name or approval from others or their thoughts of us. So when we refuse to admit our sins, could it be because we're clinging to the idol of approval? Or could it be because we are clinging to an idol of our performance where we believe the gospel-less lie that we could be good enough for God to accept us? You know, 19th century uh, pastor Thomas Brooks, I don't expect you to know that name, but he wrote the Christmas carol, Little Town of Bethlehem, which of course you know. He preached a sermon on this text, and I want you to listen to what he said. This is how he ended it. He said, so the only hope for any of us is in a perfectly honest manliness to claim our sins. I did it. I did it. Let me say of all my wickedness. Now, this is the money line I want you to hear. Let me refuse to listen for one moment to any voice which would make my sins less mine. There's freedom in admitting our sins to cease the blame shifting because it's then that we find comfort into running into Christ's waiting arms. To minimize sin is to minimize Christ's work, don't you see? 
And to cling to what others will think of us is to find more safety in the idol of approval than the approval found in Christ through repentance and faith that his blood will cover all of our sins. But it gets even more absurd somehow because Aaron, can you believe this guy? What does he say? The people gave me this gold. I just tossed it in the fire, man. And then poof! Out came a calf. Can you believe in Moses? And Moses is probably like, no, I can't. And Philip Reichen draws out the silliness here when he writes, when God tells about the golden calf, Aaron plays a starring role. But to hear Aaron tell it, he was a minor character, one of the extras. Furthermore, he treated the golden calf like some kind of spontaneous miracle. Cow? What cow? Oh, that cow? Well, Moses, I've been wondering about that myself. I don't know how it got there. It was unbelievable. I mean, people took off their jewelry, and the next thing you know, there's this cow, and people are worshiping it. And he says, idols are always man-made, but Aaron tried to make it sound like this one was self-produced. Today, people call it spin, but the Bible calls it lying. It's a strategy sinners often use to avoid confessing their sin. And it just highlights further the insanity of sin. Does Aaron really think Moses is going to believe that he tossed some gold. I know every parent in this room has had a time when their child has said something so insanely ridiculous like this, right? Does he really believe that Aaron, Moses is going to believe he just threw the gold in the fire? Magically, there was this calf can. You know, if, there was tra- if time travel was possible, you know where I'd pick to go back in history? This exact moment, just so I could see what Moses' face did when this jabroni told him that this cow just came out of this fire, right? But this is what sin does to us all. But it doesn't have to. When we sin, when our idols are revealed, we need not be cowards and conceal because Christ gives us the courage to confess and admit because we trust in his atoning work to cover over us and to help defeat us and our, help to defeat our sin and cowardice. No need to save face when Christ is your champion. But next we see in 25 to 29 that Moses further observes what's happening in the camp and it's utter chaos, right? And so it's so chaotic that Moses believes that if we're an enemy army were to observe what was going on, that they would mock them and they would be rife for the picking, which of course they are. So in order to restore order, Moses calls for those who are on the Lord's side, okay? And the sons of Levi who will come to be uh, the priests of Israel gather to Moses, he tells them to go to and fro throughout the camp and kill the idolaters. Okay? When he says in verse 27 to kill their brother and companions and neighbors, he's essentially telling them that friendship or kinship shouldn't stop them from carrying out their duty. And they go on to kill about 3,000 men, which you might remember is about 0.05% of the male population uh, since there are over a million Israelites at this point. And all the ones they kill are ones who refuse to give their soul allegiance to Yahweh. So we must not picture this as some kind of random act. It's a, it's a deliberate act of ridding the Israelite camp of those who want to continue their split allegiances. Now, we moderns read this and think this is quite barbaric, right? Come on, we do. Of course we do. Why would, why would God have Moses do this? Kill 3,000 people? I mean... What's a little idolatry between friends, right? But there are several reasons for this. It is, as mentioned, to restore order so they won't be overtaken by an enemy. Chaos is not of God, okay? God is not a God of chaos, but of order. 
Another reason is to show the Israelites how serious idolatry is. A third reason was to show who was for the Lord and who was going to continue in their idolatry and continue to turn their back to the Lord. And thus, a fourth reason was keeping idolaters in the camp was unacceptable because they would, if they stay, they would lead others in the camp away from the Lord. Do you see? Douglas Stewart says it way better than I could. He says, a modern person accustomed to the sentimentalism of Western liberal thinking might find the idea of killing idolaters impossible to justify. Moses, on the other hand, understood that leaving idolaters in the midst of Israel to influence others away from the opportunity for eternal life was impossible to justify. God revealed to him that a fight was underway over saving truth. If the idolatry was allowed to continue, many people in ancient Israel would turn from saving truth to condemning falsehood, from the promise of eternal life with God to destruction in hell. And since Israel was a repository of God's saving truth at the time, allowing idolatry to continue might have affected the potential for eternal life of countless future generations. Moses' actions, as described, he adds (laughs) in this passage, are not to be copied, for the new covenant does not allow for killing as a means of preservation of orthodoxy. (laughs) So truly, the future of Israel was at stake here. If Israel had any chance to survive, Moses needed to restore order and find out who was with Yahweh and who was not. If the people did not want to give their full devotion and allegiance to God, then they couldn't be left to influence others and wouldn't be fit to enter the promised land. Don't you see? And this is also why we see in verse 35 that God sent a plague to Israel. God still punishes them because there were some apostates in the camp. As Garrett says, it wasn't that God was unwilling to forgive, but that he knew who were his and who were not. And a plague would help bring Israel to their senses because it would show them how serious their idolatry and split allegiances. And let's not forget, okay, all of this could have been avoided, yes? All of this could have been avoided if the people would have responded, not only I mean, you might be thinking back to if only Aaron hadn't done this, if only the people hadn't done it, but if only when Moses said, who's with the Lord? If only all those people would have responded positively, this all could have been avoided. But anyway, you slice it, reading an account where so many people are struck down with a sword makes us squirm, yes? And it should. But I wonder if we are scandalized more by that act or by God's mercy to not take all of Israel out. In other words, are we more shocked that God had Moses call for the striking down of idolaters or of God's loving kindness to spare the vast majority of Israel in light of their idolatry? Like, shouldn't we be more amazed at God's mercy to preserve the nation than horrified at these thousands? Many years ago, the late R.C. Sproul was part of this panel at some conference, and someone submitted a question, and this is what the question that they asked, okay? And you can find this on YouTube. Since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when Adam first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? That was the question. This is what Sproul, Sproul was like flabbergasted at this question, okay? And he said, This creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God 
After God had told them that on the day that they ate the forbidden fruit, that they would surely die, and instead of dying that day, God clothed him in his nakedness and declared that the serpent's head would be crushed by the seed of the woman, and the punishment was too severe. He said, what's wrong with you people? And this is like a meme and a gif now. And everybody laughed. And he's like, I'm serious. This is what's wrong with the church today. We don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are. The real question is, why wasn't infinitely more severe? And we can ask the same here. We can't say this was too severe, for it was God who led Moses to this and sent the plague. Maybe the real question is, why wasn't God more severe with them? Could it be, I wonder, that we presume grace rather than being amazed by it? There's grace even here. Isn't there? He could just wipe them all out. These people defied a holy God who rescued them by his initiative and might. And as he was giving plans on how he could dwell with them forever in their midst, they made a God out of gold and worshiped it. And what was the reason? Moses took too long. Sin is serious, isn't it? Now, we, we don't want to hear that in a world of mushy relativism, but it would be unloving to call sin anything but cosmic treason against the holy God because only when you see the gravity of that will you see the enormity and the beauty of what comes next. Moses, having seen how serious the idolatry was, he knew that he had to intercede again for the people. He knew although his actions were necessary and God directed, they weren't enough. He felt that he needed to go back to the Lord and intercede again for this people. And what we see in the exchange between God and Moses in 30 through 34 really shows us Moses' heart and how much he cared for Israel. Because, you know, we can read what's been done in 15 through 29 and think he was being harsh or rash. Breaking the tablets, burning and crushing the calf, making the people drink it, confronting Aaron, having the Levites kill 3,000 of their countrymen. All of this seems excessive and unloving. But to the contrary, you cannot read 30 through 34 and come to that conclusion. In fact, what this reveals to us is that idolatry is serious and soul-threatening. And therefore, what Moses did, he did because he wanted the people to live and grow and know Yahweh. So Moses tells them again that this was a great sin, and he says, I'm going to Yahweh. And look at this. You see what it says? Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. And he goes to the Lord and he admits this is a great sin that they did. He, he doesn't excuse their sin, right? He didn't say, they had a good reason, Lord. I was up here a long time. He didn't say, you know, everyone sins, God. Notice he look, doesn't, he didn't do like Aaron and say, God, don't overreact. He says, they sinned a great sin. They did, in fact, make a God for themselves out of gold. And then he offers himself as an atoning sacrifice for their sins, saying, please forgive their sins. If you can't forgive their sins, blot me out of the book of life for them. Moses offering to stand in Israel's place. He's saying, if you must destroy someone, destroy me and forgive them. Why? I mean, like Moses didn't do anything wrong, right? Like our guy was up on the mountain in obedience to the Lord 
when Israel fell into idolatry. He's innocent. But he's not innocent enough. And by that I mean God rejects his offer to atone for the people because he's not qualified. Yes, he was on a mountain when they sinned, and he is innocent of that, but he's still a sinner. He's still just a man. He was right that sins need to be paid for, and he's right that they need forgiven, and thus the people need a savior, but he was wrong in thinking that he could fit the bill. But his offer and love for the people should be commended. Is not the foreshadowing of the gospel not screaming at us right now? Now you remember earlier when we said that the tablet written by the finger of God were the most precious object on the earth at that time? Well, the most precious of God that landed on earth over 2,000 years ago makes the tablets pale in comparison by a trillion. Of course, he wasn't an object, but he was a person, but not just a person, but God in the flesh. No one, no thing, no anything in the history of the universe was and is more prized by God than his son, Jesus Christ. And Moses is right. Idolaters like me need forgiveness, but deserve a plague. Idolaters like you need atonement, but deserve to be blotted out from the book of life. But God wouldn't settle for that. And so the most precious man who ever lived was offered up in your place, in my place, so that you wouldn't be blotted out from the book of life. Before the foundations of the world, in eternity's past, in a conference of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity said, as it were, these people will sin a great sin. They will make for themselves gods of gold and of silver and of money and of work and of play and of sex and of drink and of possessions and jobs, and they will chase them with all of their might and they will rebel and they will commit cosmic treason against us. But now if you will forgive their sin, I will enter their mess and I will live the life they fail to live, and I will die outside the camp in their place. You know, that time, God didn't deny the request like he did with Moses. He accepted. And in the fullness of time, God was made flesh, and he tabernacled among us, and the only perfect person to ever live, the only one who could absorb the wrath of God and stand in the place of wayward sinners like you and me, was nailed to a Roman cross. All of his friends deserted him. And he hung there, and he was naked, and he was alone, and God poured every last drop of his wrath intended for us on Christ's perfect shoulders. Friend, tell me, is sin serious? It nailed the Son of God to a tree. But like Moses here, he willingly did it for you. That is how you are loved. Now, there was a lot of bad news in the message today <laughs> regarding sin and idolatry. Why? Because we need to see the seriousness of our sins so we can see the incredible beauty and grace of King Jesus. That's how much it costs, don't you see? This isn't so we could be leave today and just be navel-gazing and feel burdened under the weight of our guilt, but so that we can be flabbergasted and overwhelmed with the grace of God and see that the weight is lifted because of Jesus, so we don't, we don't need that sin. Don't you see? We don't need the idolatry. 
We, we don't need what the world tells us we need. We don't need to be making mud pies in the slum. We don't need the acceptance of people, and we can tear down our idols because we aren't afraid or dependent on them for meaning, and we can deal rightly with things that get in the way of our knowing this glorious Jesus more. And we can freely confess our sin and pay the cost of following Jesus and work for his kingdom with glad obedience living for his glory alone. Friend, can I ask, do you know this Jesus? Has his righteous record and his death in your place been applied to your bankrupt account? Have you confessed him as your savior and king and given him your allegiance? Have you repented and gone to him and put the full weight of your life on him? If not, today's the day. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. Go to him and call on him for salvation. If you have given Jesus your allegiance, can I ask, are there things, brother and sister, that are keeping you from devotion to him? Are there things that are stealing your time and affections and splitting your allegiance? Take the necessary steps to return to Christ, back to his rightful place. Repent of sins and idolatry. He'll freely forgive you. And he'll give you the power to remove idols and put your allegiance back on him. Look to Christ and behold the lengths he went to get to you. And be amazed. And be moved. And go to him and make him your all in all. What, it, what could it cost you to get more of him? Whatever it is, it's nothing compared to what it cost for him to get to you.